السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك لعبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد So inshallah ta'ala today we're going to continue with our tafsir of, of Surah Al-Balad ta'ala and just to recap what we did last week where we essentially covered the tafsir of the third and fourth verses of Surah Al-Balad uh, In the third verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as we mentioned last week takes the second oath that we find in this surah and it is the oath that therefore follows the first verse which is the oath that is taken by the city of Mecca and we mentioned then that the second verse is in addition to the first verse wherein Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and you are O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then the scholars differed as to the tafsir of the word hill and we said that the majority of them said that it means that you are free of blame and you are free of responsibility or blame in this regard and many of them held that to mean uh, when the Prophet would later come and conquer the city of Mecca and other scholars said no what it means is whilst you are resident in the city and it's an additional form of adding status and virtue to the already virtuous city of Mecca and some of the scholars as Ibn Qayyim even said that it's referring to the act that the Quraysh would, would, would perpetrate of trying to assassinate the Prophet even though he was in the sanctuary of Mecca. Either way, that is the second verse. The third verse, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes the second oath in which he says subhanahu wa ta'ala wa walidin wa ma walad. Allah azza wa takes an oath by the father and by the son according to the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir. And we said that the scholars differed as to the exact function of the ma in this verse whether the ma is mawsula or whether it is nafia. And the majority of the scholars were of the position that it is the ma of mawsula, meaning, and Allah Azza takes an oath by the, by the uh, parent and by the child of that parent. And the majority of the scholars understood that to mean Adam السلام, and his progeny. And some of them specify that progeny by saying that it's, for example, the Prophet Wasallam. Another said that the father refers to Ibrahim السلام, and the progeny refers to Ismail or some of them said the Prophet Either way though the general meaning is accepted that it's referring to a parent and a child and we mentioned that Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala the Imam of the Mufassirin he was of the position that you make that, that, that meaning of, or the tafsir of that verse as general as possible so that it is a catch-all and that is how he essentially brings about and reconciles between all of those different statements between whether it's Adam or Ibrahim or Ismail or our Prophet and that is a general methodology that Imam Al-Tabari often has when there is no other verse to support a position or no hadith to support a position or no clear-cut statement or, or consensus amongst the companions عنهم, to support a position he then says if it's possible to have a general understanding because the Quran speaks in a very generic form that is referring to every parent and every child of that parent, then that's what we hold the tafsir to be. And then other scholars said, no, that is referring to a ma'nafiyah. The ma' in this verse of wa walidin wa ma'walad is to negate. 
And what that means by negation is that therefore it is every parent and the child that they did not have. The child that they did not have as the teacher of our teacher, Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin, Ash-Shanqiti Ta'ala said, it is kullu azimin wa ma lam yurad lah. Every great person and the child that they never had. And that is also from the signs of Allah Azza wa Jal. Right? We know from the signs of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala and from the signs of His power and His ability, Jalla fi ula, as Allah Azza wa Jal tells us elsewhere in the Quran, is that Allah Azza wa Jal gives to, to people as He pleases in terms of progeny and children. Lillahi mulku samawati wal ard. To Allah belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth. Yahluku ma yasha. He creates whatever He wills, Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. Yahabu li man yasha'u inatha. He gives to whomsoever he wills, girls. And he gives to whomsoever he wills, boys. Or Allah gives to them a mixture of male and female, of boys and girls. And Allah makes whomsoever he wills, barren. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-capable, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so therefore Allah has the power to give to whomsoever He wills. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala withholds from someone, especially if that person is as Ash-Shanqiti and others, alayhi rahmatullah, they said, that it's referring to the mighty and the powerful, the people that have wealth and they have power and they have prestige and they have all of the trappings of the dunya. Despite all of that power or assumed power that they have at their fingertips, all of that wealth that can usually buy them and give them whatever they want, the one thing that they're not able to achieve by their own accord, by that wealth, by virtue of that power, is to have the children that they so desire. In many cases, the children that they want, that is a gift from the gifts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why Allah Azza wa Jalla, in that verse that I just recited, mentions at the beginning, Yahabu, Allah bestows, Allah gifts to whomsoever He wills, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we have a similar example in, in the story of a number of prophets, alayhi salatu salam. You know, for example, in the story of the likes of Zakaria, alayhi salam, even the Prophet Ibrahim, these are prophets who Allah gave to them children when they had reached a very advanced old age, an age in which normally a person would not be having children. And that is also from the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the tafsir of the third verse. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues and he says, We have indeed created man in turmoil, in difficulty. And some of the scholars were of the position that the word insan is a generic word. It means humans. We have created mankind. We have created man in a very generic meaning of the word. So that encompasses everyone. And that was the position of the vast majority of the scholars with tafsir. But some of the scholars with tafsir, they said that it is particular to a certain individual by way of example, first and foremost. And we gave the example uh, last week of the man that is known as Abu al-Ashad, or in some narrations, Abu al-Ashaddin. And his mention will come again this week because it is similar. These verses are interconnected to one another. And some of the scholars said other than him, as we will mention, inshallah ta'ala, this week. This week. But the vast majority of the scholars were of the position that it's not referring to a particular individual. These verses were revealed due to a particular incident or a particular thing that took place in the time of the Prophet wasallam. Rather, it is a generic word. We have created man. Fi kabad. In difficulty and turmoil. And that is the position of the majority of the scholars with tafsir in their tafsir that they say that we have created man. The word kabad means difficulty, hardship, toil, turmoil. Right? That's what it's referring to. And we mentioned last week the long um, you know the long passage from the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi 
Taala, when he actually lists the different stages that a person goes through from their birth all the way up to their death and even the difficulties that a person goes through even in terms of for example seeking knowledge and learning the first time you sit with the teacher right the first moment that you interact with the new teacher that's a difficulty you don't know the personality of the teacher the teacher doesn't know your personality you don't know how you're going to mesh or jowl or not jowl you don't know how easy or difficult it's going to be that is also in its own way a type of struggle and then if things go well alhamdulillah with the passage of time then that becomes something which is easier for you and throughout life everything is one challenge from another challenge one difficulty to another difficulty so we have made people as Allah Azza wa is saying we have created them to live in turmoil and other scholars uh, of the, were of the position that refers to the upright standing the physical form and fashion of the human it refers to the way that humans stand upright and that is unique amongst the creations of Allah Azza wa Jal in terms of all of the mammals and the animals that Allah has created the fish and so on the, the way that a human stands it is something which is unique and some of the scholars said that's what kabad refers to and we said that the way that we understand those two and we uh, reconcile between them is some of the scholars said that the scholars who took that position that is referring to the physical form of a human what they meant by that is that that is the best way that a human that Allah has empowered the human to be able to overcome that toil and turmoil that they find in their life by way and by virtue of the way that Allah has created them by the fact that they can stand and that they have the power to use their arms and their legs in the way that Allah has given to them that they are best equipped therefore to be able to deal with the challenges of life so that is briefly what we took uh, last week in terms of the in, in terms of those two verses that we made the tafsir of or that we took the tafsir of verses 3 and 4 of surah al-balad in this week's lesson therefore we continue with verse number 5 and in verse number 5 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says أَيَحْسَبُ أَن لَّن يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٌ Does he think that no one will have power over him? Does he think that no one will have power over him? That is the translation of uh, Abdul Harim and I think the translation of everyone else will be pretty similar. Uh, Muhsin Khan says does he think that none can overcome him? Uh, Mufti Taqi does he think that no one has power over him? And Sahih International, does he think that never will anyone overcome him? So, very similar in terms of the translations that we have there. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now speaking and, and elucidating, as I think we mentioned or, or hinted last week, that the major topic of this surah is the human. And the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them certain abilities and that Allah azza wa jalla has given them certain qualities and certain skills and certain blessings and the way that a person therefore must use those skills in order to save themselves from the punishment of Allah and to attain his reward, his pleasure, his jannah and how there are people who do that and there are people who don't do that how there are people who take that and how and grasp that opportunity that Allah has given to them and there are people who don't take that opportunity and don't grasp that opportunity from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so this verse when Allah says does he think that no one will have power over him it is uh, connected to the previous verse, verse number four, right? In which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ We created humans in turmoil and in toil and in difficulty. Now when someone is in turmoil or toil, right? If someone is going through one challenge after another, as is the nature of human life, one hardship to another or one 
uh, you know, situation to another situation, there are always a couple of options in terms of the way that they deal with it, especially from an Islamic point of view, from a Muslim's point of view. The first is that they have to overcome that way, that challenge, that difficulty, that toil, that turmoil, whatever it may be, that situation. They have to overcome it in the way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the way that Allah azawajal has legislated, in the way that they find its solution in the Quran or in the Sunnah of our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Or you have the other choice, right, the second choice, and that is the choice of the person who chooses to ignore those teachings, chooses to ignore the commandments of Allah and His Prophet who will choose to overcome that, that uh, difficulty, not even necessarily in an illegal way, like in terms of human man-made law, but they will do it in a way that is not the best outcome for them in terms of their akhirah. Right? So for example, living in the West and living in many of the countries that we do, where for example in our financial system, the banking system, in much of our buying and selling and trade, we know that one of the major components of the way that our financial systems work is the concept of riba, right, of usury and interest. It is so widespread and it is perfectly legal in vast, the vast majority of these countries. The question now for the Muslim is that when they come to that situation and they have the choice now of taking a loan, for example, of borrowing some money, of, 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 of performing a transaction, do they do it with the riba element if, they, if that is what is on, uh, available? And if there is an alternative that is non-riba, do they take the riba element or do they not? Right. So I'm not speaking about those people, for example, who don't have a choice. I'm not speaking about those people, for example, who for whom there is no alternative. But for the vast majority of people, to keep it very simple, you need some money, so you go to a friend and you want to borrow from him. And he says, okay, I'll give you £100 or $100 or whatever it is that you need. But in two months' time, when you pay it back, I need 150 back from you. 110 120 That is riba. Right? So now you have an option, and that's only a very, obviously, very, you know, very small example. In everything that we do, we have a choice in terms of the way that we live our lives and in the way that we choose to live our lives. Do we do it in a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? So Allah azawajal acknowledges himself the fact that our life is full of challenges and difficulties. Right? Uh, you know, and I mentioned last week, for example, that poem uh, from the uh, and delusion scholar, right? Who spoke about how even if one day is easy for you, there will be many days that are hard for you, and that is just human life. And that's not being pessimistic in terms of our outlook as Muslims. It is the reality of the nature that we have, and that is from the test that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has ordained from us. But if you overcome those challenges or you face those challenges in the way that is pleasing to Allah Azza wa Jal, then actually that is taking something which may seem to be pessimistic and turning it into something which is optimistic. Because you know that by doing it in that way, you are coming closer to Allah Azza wa Jal. You are gaining reward. And that is something which is from the greatest means of attaining inner peace and tranquility and solace by the permission of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So Allah Azza wa Jal here is saying that these people who are in turmoil and who are in difficulty, and these are the people now that Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to who take the second option, the option of doing the haram, the option which is often, as we know, many a time, perhaps even the easier option, the more comfortable option, right? The option that is more uh, more attuned to a person's desires and to the whisperings of shaitan. If they take that, then Allah Azzawajal says, Does this person not think, or does this person think that no one has power over him, that he is free to do as he pleases, that he can come and go as he pleases, buy and sell as he pleases, eat and drink as he pleases, say and do as he pleases, and that no one 
has power over him to hold him to account, to take him and to judge him for his actions and his statements. And that is why Imam Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that these verses, and, and we've already mentioned it like for the past, uh, for the last verse, but Imam Tabari mentions it in the tafsir of this verse. It is said that it was revealed concerning certain people, right? That because of the way that they were, they felt that no one could touch them, that no one would hold them to account, that no one would judge them. And he mentions, rahimahullah ta'ala, the story or, or the, the, the individual that we mentioned in last week's lesson. Right, As we mentioned last week, there was a man from the tribe of Banu Jumah, right, as we said, which was one of the famous clans of Mecca from the Quraysh, and his name or his kunya was Abu al-Ashaddain. And Ashad means someone who is the strongest. Ashaddain is like double strong. And he was known for his, uh, for his um, strength, right, for his physical strength and his courage. And it is said in some of those narrations that he would actually take a person and he would put them on the ground and he would place his foot on them and he would say, who can take my foot off this man? Meaning, who can move me? And people would come and try to push him and they wouldn't be able to move his foot because of how physically strong he was that another man wouldn't be able to push him off. And so he would say, thinking that his, that his power, that his physical prowess, that his strength, his physical strength was everything, he thought that he was a person who couldn't be defeated. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is seeing as Imam Tabari goes on to say, فَاللَّهُ غَالِبُهُ وَقَاهِرُهُ But he didn't realize that Allah has more power than him, right? That Allah has more power than him, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ability over him. And that is why it is from the sunnah of Allah from the universal laws of Allah in the dunya, that nothing is raised except that it must fall. Nothing is raised except that it, is, that it must fall. Right? And that is mentioned even in a hadith that is collected in, uh, in, in, in the famous collections of hadith. Uh, when the man came and he wanted to uh, wrestle the Prophet wasallam, the Prophet was known for his prowess and his physical strength and so on. But on that one occasion, that man who came and challenged him, he overcame the Prophet wasallam, And so the people became upset. And so the Prophet wasallam laid down this principle for them. That Allah has decreed that nothing is raised except that it must also fall, right? And that is from a general physical dunya aspect, right? That doesn't refer to a person's iman, even though we know that iman also fluctuates, it goes up and down. But that is something which has an everlasting impact, inshallah ta'ala, for the believers on Yawm al-Qiyamah. But in terms of the dunya aspects, in terms of the worldly things that are confined to the dunya, a person's wealth, a person's age, a person's power, a person's prestige, a person's health, all of those things, right? They, they will... For those that go up, it will also come down. You at one point have the epitome of youth and all of your strength, but a time will soon come when you're unable to use that strength, when you become frail and infirm and you become physically weak. People have money, but then a time comes when they lose that money, whether that's in their lifetime or after their death. Even if it is by virtue of death that you lose those things, then no doubt that is also from the meanings of something which has been raised, being being brought back down to earth. Because there is nothing like you know more humbling than a person having to enter their grave, and so that is something which we know. So therefore, it is something which uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala mentions in a number of places in the Quran. It is an established principle. So that's the position of some of the scholars that it's referring to this man called Abu Ashaddin, right? Um, others said, and 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 the stronger position in Allah Azza wa Jalla's verses that these verses are general, that it's not referring to any particular individual. 
Um, however, it is mentioned in some of the books of Tafsir that some of the scholars said that it's referring to certain individuals that were mentioned, those narrations, even though the majority keep it in a very generic way, as an Imam Al-Tabari himself does uh, essentially, uh, Ibn Kathir Ta'ala does uh, something of the same, uh, and others as well. Uh, Ibn Atiyah Ta'ala, he said that another narration is that this verse was revealed, or these verses were revealed concerning a man uh, by the name of Amr ibn Wud, Amr ibn Wud, and in some narrations uh, or, or in some uh, tellings of his name, he's known as uh, Amr ibn Abdi Wud, Amr ibn Abdi Wud, and his story is the one that is mentioned in uh, Sunan al-Kubra of al-Bayhaqi, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, from, and it is from the narrations of history, right? it's from the historical narrations. It is said that this, uh, when, when the Prophet was fighting in the Battle of Khandaq, right, which is the Battle of the Trench, when the confederal armies came from across Arabia to come and to try to overtake Medina and to, and to conquer Medina. And the Prophet was, was given the advice by Salman al-Farsi, as we know the story, to dig a wide and deep trench on the whole side of Medina, right, a whole a section of Medina, because Medina, as we know, is surrounded by mountains. And so the Prophet ﷺ had one area kind of to defend, which was the direction from which the Confederate armies would be coming, and the opposite direction to that would be where the, uh, where the Jewish tribes and others lived, right? And we know, therefore, the story that took place with regards to them as well. But either way, these particular, uh, this particular side of Medina then was the side that they dug the trench and they spent a number of days and weeks digging this trench that was wide and that was... Uh, that was deep. And the, the end result of that is that when the Confederate armies came, they found something which they never encountered before because Salman saw this and he knew of this tactic because this is what they did in Persia. Right? Persia is a very far away away from the Arabs of Quraysh and the Arabs of Arabia and what they used to do and what they, they were accustomed to in terms of their warfare. And so when they came and they saw this, they didn't really know how to overcome it and it's something which they couldn't really uh, pass and they had a number of, of, of one of kind of like skirmishes and, uh, and attempts to try to, to do this until we know that eventually they kind of become fed up and the, and the, and the different Arab tribes are kind of becoming restless and then we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent upon them a strong wind that blew uh, some of the tents away and, 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 the, and the animals away and so on and then people lost heart and they eventually returned without really there being a battle of sorts but it was a victory for the Muslims because of the way that they defended. One of the skirmishes or one of the incidents that takes place that is mentioned by some of the scholars of history and it's mentioned by Al-Bayaqi in the Sunan al-Kubra is this particular narration. And that is that of this man from the Quraysh, from the disbelievers of Quraysh in the army. His name is Amr ibn Wud or in some narrations Amr ibn Abdi Wud. And it's said that this man, he came out and he called out to the Muslims and he said, Man yubaris, who will meet me in a duel, right, a one-on-one duel. And we know that this was a common uh, aspect of the warfare of the Arabs that they would often be before the beginning of their battles they would do these one-on-one duels right you would have the nobleman of one side fighting the nobleman of another side and it would be like a duel and obviously it would be something to show that the winner has the upper hand it's like a it's like a confidence boosting thing it's a morale thing and for the people that lose it's like considered like a bad omen or something so this was very common and we saw we know that there are uh, precedents to this even before in the battle of Badr for example when Hamza radiallahu anhu, Ali radiallahu a number of the companions stand and they fight against their number on the side of Quraysh. So this man is asking for something very similar. Man you baddies. So Ali radiallahu anhu, he stood up 
And he said to the Prophet Sallallahu Ana Laha, O Messenger of Allah, let me go and fight the man. So the Prophet Sallallahu knew this man, and this man had a reputation for his for his courage and his fighting, and he was known on the battlefield. So he said, Innahu Amrun Ijlis. Oh Ali, this man is Amr, so sit down. So the Prophet so Ali radiallahu an sat down. So the second time Amr calls out, Allah Rajul, is there no man that is willing to face me? Right? And he's essentially prodding them, he's essentially trying to rile them up, he's essentially trying to get one of them to stand up and to and to uh, you know and to kind of like uh, meet him one on one on the battlefield. Uh, in one narration it is even said that he said to them, Where is this Jannah that you claim? That if one of you dies, you will go to it. Meaning that if, if there's really a Jannah and a paradise, why are you so afraid of it? It's a win-win for you either way. Either you kill me or you die and you go to your Jannah. So is there no man that will come and face me? Ali radiallahu anhu again stood up and he said, O Messenger of Allah, let me go. The Prophet wasallam said to him, No, sit down, it's Amr. The third time, the man again, Amr, said the same thing and now he's quoting poetry and all sorts. Ali radiallahu anhu stands up and he says, O Messenger of Allah, let me go. The Prophet said, it's Amr. Ali radiallahu anhu on the third occasion, he said, so what if it's Amr, O Messenger of Allah? So the Prophet allowed him to do so. So when he came and he approached Amr, Amr asked him, he said, who are you? He said, I am Ali. He said, are you the son of Abd Manaf? He said, I am the son of Abu Talib. And Abd Manaf is from the, uh, as we know, from the, uh, from the descendants of, or from the ascendants of the Prophet from his great-grandfathers. But he's mentioning Abd Manaf because he wants someone who's older in age, right? More of his generation as opposed to someone like Ali radiallahu who is of a younger generation. So he said to him, let someone else come from your uncles, O Ali, because I dislike that I should have to fight you and spill your blood and kill you. So Ali radiallahu responded, he said, for as for me, I don't dislike spilling your blood or having to kill you. So that made him angry. And so they began to fight. And so Ali radiallahu an went towards him and he fought him and he overcame him radiallahu an. He overcame him radiallahu an. And then when the people heard this, they uh, they made the takbir and they, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa knew that Ali radiallahu an had been victorious. Some of the scholars said that this was the incident that it's referring to, right? Because this man thinks that no one can overcome him. He's openly challenging all of the, the Muslims, the Muhajireen, the Ansar, it's calling everyone. And no one is able to come to him. Does this man think that no one can come and overcome him? So that's the third, that's the second position. So the first position or the first uh, opinion of some of the scholars of Tafsir who said that it's referring to an individual, they said that it's referring to Abu al-Ashaddin, right? And the second opinion amongst those scholars who said that it's referring to an individual is that it's referring to this man Amr ibn Wud, or as some of them said, Amr ibn Abdi Wud. Amr ibn Abdi Wud. The third opinion that you will find, and it's attributed to the likes of Muqatil, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar of tafsir, he said that it was referring to, or it was revealed concerning a man by the name of Al-Hadith ibn Amir ibn Nawfal. Al-Hadith ibn Amir ibn Nawfal, who was from the Muslims. And he was someone who would sin and then he would come to the Prophet and the Prophet would say to him that you have um, that you have uh, you have because of, of, of the sin that you've committed you must give an expiation of such and such an amount meaning that you have to spend money and so he would do so right 
and this is refer this is now going to be connected to uh, the next verse which is verse number six and so he will say as, as Allah mentions in verse number six I have indeed spent a great deal of wealth meaning in terms of all of these expiations since I have become a Muslim I am just spending my money in terms of expiations and in terms of paying for these expiations but anyway these are the three positions that you will find amongst those scholars and there are others as well to be fair but these are the three that you will uh, perhaps most uh, are most well known in terms of the tafsir of these verses that is referring to these three individuals uh, one of these three individuals either Abu Lashaddin or this man Amr ibn Wud or Abdi Wud or Al-Hadith ibn Amir ibn Nawfal but as I said the majority of the scholars just keep the verse general as Suddi uh, said that it's referring to this verse when Allah says أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ Does a person think that no one can overpower them? It's referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being the one who will overpower them. Right? Uh, that it's referring to Allah being the one who overpowers them. Right? And so some of the scholars said it's referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was the position chosen also by Imam Al-Qurtubi Rahimahullah ta'ala. Another said that no, it's actually not referring to Allah Azza wa Jalla, it's referring to other humans. Do they not think that others have have the power to overcome them, right? Because someone who's strong today will find someone who is stronger than them tomorrow. And someone who is rich today will find someone who is richer than them tomorrow. And so on and so forth, right? And so therefore, you have both of those positions. And so Al-Hassan al-Basri, Rahimahullah ta'ala, he was of the position, for example, that was referring to other people, right? And essentially those two are not necessarily uh, opposing views. They're not necessarily contradicting views. No doubt that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has power over everyone. And no doubt that Allah azza wa has control over everything subhanahu wa ta'ala. But at the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has also given people abilities and given people a certain limited type of power over others. Right? And so Allah azza wa as we know, gives to one person riches and wealth that makes them the most richest or the most wealthiest person alive. But then after a few weeks or months or years, someone will inevitably come and overtake them, right? And take over that position. Someone who's extremely strong today will have someone who will old, always come and be stronger than them tomorrow, right? And that is the concept that, you know, much of our world is based upon, right? Much of our concept of, of the world is based upon that cycle, as Allah Azza wa mentions in another place in the Quran, these are the days that we rotate amongst the people, right? And that is what makes things, uh, you know, appealing to certain people in certain spheres. So, for example, in sport, right? Why do people watch sports, football or basketball or whatever they, Formula One racing, whatever it is that they're watching? If it was the same person who's always winning every single time, there was no element of competition, there was no element of, of suspense, there was no element of excitement, it was just boring. Same thing, each and every single year. Right? then people would sooner or later lose interest. But even if someone is at the pinnacle of that sport for a number of years, sooner or later, a person will come who is younger, who is fitter, who is stronger, who is faster, and they will overtake them. And that is the position of, of things in this life. So those two positions, whether it's referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or it's referring to other people, are not opposing views because both, you know, each one necessitates other in terms that Allah azza wa is the one who has power over everything. And Allah azza wa gives people abilities which show that they can overtake others from one time to another. 
Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala the famous tabi'i and scholar of tafsir he said in the tafsir of this verse ayahsabu allin yaqdira alayhi ahad qala ibn adam yadhunu allin yus'al an hadha al-mal min ayna iktasaba wa ayna anfaqa that the child of adam thinks that they will never be asked concerning the wealth that they have where did they earn it from and how did they spend it right so this is uh, also like in terms of the tafsir of this verse it is a portion of that tafsir, right? It is a portion of that tafsir, or is the meaning from the meanings of that verse that is referring to a specific aspect, and that is people who spend, people who spend their wealth. Why did Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala take this particular meaning or, or take the tafsir of this verse in this particular direction? Because it will be linked to the next verse, verse number six, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will speak specifically about wealth, right? Allah azza wa jalla speak, will speak specifically about wealth. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ So Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir, when he says that it's referring to wealth, referring to money, he's taking it to this position here, which is the position of verse number six that is going to be, uh, that is going to be referring to it. And that is, Concerning a person, them earning wealth, and concerning a person spending that wealth. In verse number six, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, This person, he says, I have squandered great wealth. I have squandered great wealth. And that is the translation of Professor Abdul Halim Mahsin Khan says, he says boastfully, I have wasted wealth in abundance. Mufti Taqi, he says, I have spent a lot of wealth. And Sahih International, he says, I have spent wealth in abundance. In this verse now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in verse number six, there is the word lubada, which is at the end of this verse. And lubada has two qiraat. It is read in two ways amongst the famous the first is the way that I just recited Lubada, which is the recitation of the majority. And in the recitation of Abu Ja'far al-Madani, rahimahullah ta'ala, who is one of the ten Qurra, he puts a shadd on the ba' and he says, Lubada. Right? And essentially the two are very similar in terms of their meaning. Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that the meaning of this word Lubada, right, is... Uh, or even lubada, they have a very similar meaning. There is a uh, there is a, a very small or slight difference between the two. The meaning of the word lubada is anything that is essentially gathered together. It is something which is kind of like brought together, and it is something which is gathered together. So the example that they give, or even Ashur Taala gives, he says, It is the uh, this word lubada is the plural of the word lubda. And it is often used, for example, when we speak about a ball of wool or a ball of hair. So when you have a ball of wool, it is essentially congealed together. It is, it is so mixed one together. It is so attached one part to another. It is so uh, brought together that it is something which is difficult to separate. If you had, for example, a ball of wool or you have, for example, a ball of hair or you have something like that, it is something which is extremely mixed together. That is the, essentially the meaning of lubada. 
and it's called Lubada because it is something which is a great amount in a small space. And that is the meaning here of Mal al Lubada, a great amount, right? But not a great amount that is dispersed, a great amount that is brought together, meaning this person who speaks and says this, Ahlaktu Mal al Lubada, I have spent a great deal of wealth, meaning the wealth that they had, a great amount of the wealth that they had. And he said, and with the Shadda Lubada, which is the reading of Abu Ja'far, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, it is therefore the plural of the word labid, and it has a very similar meaning, And the meaning of that is that it is essentially something which is joined together. A lot of things which are brought and joined together. And you find that this word talbid, right, or, or, or talbid, is something which you will find actually in the sunnah. It's mentioned in the hadith, uh, in al-Bukhari and Muslim, the hadith of Hafsa bint Umar radiyallahu anhumah, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the daughter of Umar when she was describing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and in his farewell hajj of the hajjatul wada you know when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam made the farewell hajj uh, he took with him his sacrificial animals and there were a number of companions who also left at the same time but they didn't have their sacrificial animals with them the animals that they were going to slaughter for hajj they all left Medina at the same time and they all went to Mecca and when they performed their Umrah which is essentially the first Tawaf and the Sa'i the Prophet said to them those of you that don't have animals with you that you didn't bring those animals with you to sacrifice and slaughter then you should come out of the state of Ihram meaning don't perform your Hajj don't make it one intention for your Hajj and Umrah you just do an Umrah essentially doing Tamattu right? what we would call today Tamattu so you shave your hair or cut your hair trim your hair and come out of the state of Ihram and that's what many of the companions did, except for those like the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who had brought with them their sacrificial animals alongside them. The Prophet himself stayed in the haram until the end of Hajj. But he told those companions who were in that situation, right, and from amongst those companions was his own daughter Fatima, radiyallahu anha. We know uh, an Asma, for example, radiyallahu anha, and a number of famous, well-known companions. And that's why when Ali radiyallahu anh came, because he was in Yemen at that time. When he came and he actually bore with him a number of also a number of animals that the Prophet asked him to bring so that they could sacrifice. So the Prophet had some of his own that he bought from Medina, and Ali radiallahu an brought a great number from uh, from um, from uh, Yemen with him. And when he came and he saw Fatima radiallahu an outside of the state of Haram, she's not in Haram. He said to her, "What are you doing?" And she said, "My father, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, commanded me to do so." Right. In this narration, of, of uh, that was very common at the time of the Prophet in that particular Hajjatul Wada'a. Um, in this hadith of Hafsa radiallahu anha, in this particular narration, she says, O Messenger of Allah, how come everyone else or many of the people have come out of the state of Ihram and you haven't? And the Prophet replied and he said, and this is the point here that I wanted to make in terms of this word Lubada and Tilbid, uh, which is the noun, uh, the Prophet said to her, Inni rasi hadi fala ahillu hatta anhar. I have made talbid of my hair. And I have brought along with me my sacrificial animal, so I won't come out of the state of Ihram until I sacrifice. And as we know, that sacrifice is done on the day of Eid. Right? That is when you sacrifice, uh, whether it's for people performing Eid or, or celebrating Eid at home, or whether it's for the people who are performing Hajj. Right? It is the day of Eid al-Adha or the day of sacrifice Yom nahar The point here in this hadith of Hafsa radiallahu anha is that the Prophet said labbattu ra'si labbattu ra'si and what the Prophet essentially had done what this means labbattu ra'si 
is that the Prophet ﷺ had put onto his hair some type of a gel, right? some type of a gel or some type of an ointment that would make it sticky, or essentially gelling it together. So that, and, and this is essentially done for a person in Hajj because they're going to be in a state of ihram for a long, uh, a long period of time, for a good number of days. And so what they do is that they stay in that state of ihram. It's easier for them to manage their hair and easier for their hair to stay in one place when they make this talbid. Now in the time of the Prophet wasallam, a very common way of doing this would be to use honey. Right? It's some type of, even today, like jal is a sticky type of product that kind of does that same type of action, right? How, uh, hair jal. In the time of the Prophet obviously they didn't have hair gel or these artificial products. They would use another thing. And, and, and one of the common things that they would use is honey. And it's, it's actually mentioned in some narrations that the Prophet used honey. The point is that this is called talbid. Why is it called talbid? Because when you essentially gel your hair, it sticks together. Right? That's essentially why it's called lubada. And that's the meaning of the word lubada. That is something which becomes kind of congealed and stuck together right? and it's essentially showing that there is a great amount of something because otherwise your hair is spread out all over the place when it's in one it's more volume right if you like and it is more concentrated and so the prophet وسلم, made tilbid of his ras right and and this is something which some of the scholars said it is a sunnah uh, particularly it is a sunnah for those people who are going to then shave their heads it is something which you do if you're going to shave your head because even when you go to the bob and you want to shave your head what they will often do is use soap or something to do something very similar so that they can shave off your hair right and so the position of the majority of the madahib is that a person who makes talbid of their ras must then shave off their hair right clearly we're talking about men here uh, in the state of ihram uh, they must therefore don't have they don't have the option anymore of trimming their hair they must shave off their head and other scholars were of the position that it's not necessarily a sunnah but it's something which they did in those times because it was just easier to manage in that time during the time of the Prophet The point of this anyway was not to go into the issue of, uh, of fiqh but rather to speak about the word that is used إِنِّي لَبَّتُّ رَأْسِي So the word talbid uh, or, or, or this noun or, or the verb form of it is something which is well known in the Arabic language and so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَقُولُ أَهْلَكْتُ مَالَ lubada," I have indeed spent and squandered or whatever, wasted a great deal of wealth. Right? That's the word, well, that's what the word lubada mean, and that is, uh, means. And that is why the majority of the scholars of tafsir uh, took that meaning, that the word lubada means kathir. It means a great amount. Right? As mentioned by Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, it is a great deal of wealth. And you have a similar statement of Qatada Rahimahullahu Ta'ala. And that is why Imam al-Bukhari Rahimahullah Ta'ala also chose that as well. And as we know, as we mentioned before, uh, the, the, Imam, al, uh, Imam al-Bukhari Rahimahullah Ta'ala often takes the position of Mujahid Rahimahullah Ta'ala when he comes to his tafsir. Who is it referring to now, this person who has spent their wealth Right, who spent their wealth and is saying that I have squandered a great deal of this wealth. What is it referring to? Some of the scholars said that it's referring to a general meaning. Right? It's not something which is particularly uh, narrated about one individual or another. But if you take the position of some of the scholars, like as even Imam al-Tabari mentioned, that it's referring to the man Abu al-Ashaddin, or that it's referring to Amr ibn Wud or Abdi Wud, or it's referring to that man al-Harith ibn Amr ibn Nawfal, then what you're essentially saying is that it's referring to those people. 
And so Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, the meaning of this is, يقول تعالى ذكره هذا الجديد الشديد أهلكت مالا كثيرا في عداوة محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم فانفقت ذلك فيه. That this man of power, this man of prestige, and he's referring to Abu Al-Shaddin, he's saying that indeed I spent a great deal of my wealth in the enmity of the Prophet meaning to, to fight and to oppose the Prophet right? uh, says, and he is lying in terms of, of that. Uh, and that's if you take that tafsir that's referring to a specific individual. So if we say, for example, it's referring to that man, Abu al-Shaddain, then that's what he's saying. He's saying that basically I spent my wealth to try to combat because he became a man who was who had a great deal of enmity to Islam and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He's saying that I spent a lot of my wealth in the enmity of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, to fight and to oppose him. Or if it's, for example, referring to that man, Amr ibn Wud, then it has a similar meaning because he was also from the people of Quraysh that had enmity towards Islam and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Or if we take the position of Muqatil that is referring to Al-Hadith ibn Amr ibn Nawfal, then he says, as is mentioned by Muqatil in that statement, that he said that I have spent a great deal of my wealth since I followed the Prophet since I became a Muslim, in paying for these expiations. Right? That's the first position. Some of the scholars took that position. However, the majority, if they, were, if, if they take the position that it's referring to a general thing, they don't necessarily uh, specify it and, and constrict it and restrict the meaning to it uh, to just being enmity to Islam, as Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala has done. But rather they leave it general. So for example, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that this person who says this, that I've spent my wealth, they see it as a type of boasting. right? And that is why you find in the translations that we read at the beginning of the tafsir of this verse that most of the uh, you know, translations seem to, or some of them anyway, uh, seem to have said that. At least Muhsin Khan does so in brackets. He says, they say or he says boastfully. Right? And this is essentially the tafsir of Ibn Qayyim and others. That essentially what he's saying is that this person is not even referring necessarily to fighting Islam or to opposing the Prophet It's referring to a person who has spent a great deal of their wealth in what? In, 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 in indulging in their carnal desires and in indulging in, their tempt, in the temptations of the dunya and in indulging in those things which, are, which Allah has made haram. They've spent their money doing things that they shouldn't have been doing and engaging in practices that they shouldn't have been engaging in and by doing so they became distant from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they turned away from the path of Allah azza wa jal and so this person whether it's a person who is regretting that which they did in their past right it's something which happened before and they're regretting what they did then this is the person that Allah azza wa jal is saying that they have forgotten that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would hold them to account right does this person think that no one has any power over him? They've spent their whole wealth right, squandering it in things which are not pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Didn't they know that Allah azza wa would hold them to account? And that is why, as we said, Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala, he took the tafsir in that direction. That is referring to a person, or don't they realize that they will be questioned in terms of where that wealth came from and where that wealth was spent? And we know. From the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, the hadith that a person's feet will not move on the day of judgment and they're asked about a number of things. From those things that they will be asked about is their wealth. How did you earn that wealth and where and how did you spend that wealth? Right? And so that is a meaning and it is something which is a principle that is established in the sunnah.
in verse number seven, then to conclude that kind of uh, particular part of this surah, Allah subhanahu wa taala then continues and He says, "Ayahsabu allam yarahu ahad." Does He think that no one observes Him? Right? And I think that the translation pretty much will be the same for that amongst everyone. Does He think that no one sees Him or observes Him? Yeah. So essentially, it is the same translation amongst all of those translators that we often refer to. So again, this is linked to verses five and six. Right? Does this person think that no one has power over him? They say that they have squandered all of their wealth. Do they not think that anyone observes them? Do they not know that anyone, that there is someone that is watching them? And that is why Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Does this person not know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala watches him and sees him? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what it is, what, what it is that he is doing? And Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said, Yabna Adam, O child of Adam, you are responsible for your wealth. You are responsible for how you for how you earn that wealth, and you are responsible for how you spent that wealth. And Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here, does this person who makes a statement that they squandered their wealth, that they spent a great abundance of wealth busying themselves, whether it's we say that they did it to oppose Islam, which is no doubt a worse and heinous, more heinous crime, as opposed to someone who just spends their wealth in terms of their shahawat, in terms of their desires, in terms of just the trappings of the dunya and its comforts and pleasures that are haram, someone who actually spends it to oppose Islam and oppose the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, know that, that that is a graver crime. But either way, does this person who says this statement, do they not know that Allah azza wa jal, that they were being watched does this person not know that they were being watched as they spent their wealth and they gave it to uh, and they spent it in the way that they spent it? And so if, for example, we take the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, that is referring to those people who opposed Islam and opposed and enmity for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, then it's essentially what he's saying is that these people, don't they know that Allah azawajal watched them? Don't they know that they were being observed as they spent that wealth to fight Islam and to fight the religion of Allah Azza wa to fight the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Do they not know that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala was watching them or were they mindless and heedless of the fact that Allah Azza wa was watching everything that they did? And if you were to take the other tafsir of the likes of Ibn Qayyim Rahimahullah Ta'ala and those other scholars who had a much more general right, view and overview in terms of the tafsir of this verse, then it's referring to this person who just simply spends. Don't they know that Allah Azza wa is, is watching as we as, as, they, as they spend their wealth and that which is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And these verses are essentially a reminder to everyone who is in a position where they have some type of wealth or some type of power or some type of status or prestige or something that they can use either in a way that is pleasing to Allah or in a way that is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they should always be mindful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing, jalla fi ula. They should always be mindful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala watches each and every single, single thing that they do. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala records everything that they do. And that Allah azza wa jal will hold them to account for it and judge them for it on the day of judgment. And so when we have that situation where we have that wealth and we can possibly spend it. And we're not speaking about our spending in mubah, what is permissible, what is allowed, what is recommended. We're speaking about the type of spending which comes under the haram category either because it is haram in and of itself, it's alcohol, it's drugs, or whatever it may be, that it is haram, 
or it is something which in essence may not be haram, but because of the way that we use it or the way that we, uh, you know, we, we, we interact with it, it becomes haram. So for example, someone who buys something, it's halal to buy, but they will use that as a means of becoming arrogant towards others and showing off towards others and putting others down and, and humiliating them. Or for example, someone who uses something which is generally speaking halal, but the way that they spend and the way that they use it leads to a sense of extravagance, right? And it leads to a sense of something which in the Sharia therefore becomes either disliked or there is something which becomes impermissible. So either way, whether it's directly haram or indirectly by virtue of action, by virtue of the way that it is used, it becomes something which is haram and displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This person should be mindful that Allah azawajal knows and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hears and that Allah azawajal sees and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala holds to account. And that is why then inshallah ta'ala uh, next week when we come on to the next few verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will speak about the blessings that Allah azawajal gave. Right? The blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to people in terms of their sight and in terms of the ability to speak and to communicate and the ability to be able to be to, to distinguish between right and wrong and truth and falsehood and guidance and misguidance. But those are verses that inshallah ta'ala we will come to next week bidnillahi ta'ala. So if there's any questions, inshallah ta'ala, we can take a couple of questions, otherwise inshallah we will conclude. Okay, so if there's no questions, then inshallah ta'ala, we will uh, conclude for today. Barakallahu feekum wa sallallahu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.